HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today, very uh, honored and in awe and slightly intimidated <laughs> to have Tom Douglas. Uh, intimidated? <laughs> a titan of uh, you know the Northwest, a man about mm-hmm. Seattle, but also uh, a slight part of the reason why I'm on radio. In 2006, I was lucky enough to be on your Seattle Kitchen show mm-hmm. right after Ed Levine and talk about my Back of the House project and... Uh, I don't know, just being able to express yourself through that medium uh, rather than having to stand in front of people as right. well, hidden in a box behind Roberta's restaurant. It, it's, it's kind of a calming uh, sensation, and it really clears your mind a mm-hmm. little bit. I love it. I mean, I have a show in Seattle, and of course, I was on the air with Ed Levine yesterday here in Manhattan. I'm <laughs> hosting the Martha Stewart uh, satellite or serious satellite show for the week, and uh, it's, uh, it's just a fun medium. I love the terrestrial nature of it all. Yeah, yeah. Um, Seattle Kitchen. It's on KIRO uh, mm-hmm. 97.3 FM. Um, and you took a little break. It was uh, started in, what, 2005, 2006? Exactly. And took a break. Opened. I'm now up to 13 restaurants. I have 15 by, by April. And <laughs> uh, just, uh, you know, I was doing it live every Saturday from 4 to 7. Yeah. So And, and then it just was... You know, I've, I couldn't be on vacation anymore. I was yeah. doing it from the beach in Hawaii. I was doing it from my living room in Siena. Yeah, I did it from the apartment in Paris. I, you know, I just did it from everywhere. So it was nice to take a year off. But I, I really missed the medium radio. Is something I just it's in my blood now. So yeah, and you you missed hanging out with Terry too. I did. I did. <laughs> my co-host. Yeah. Um. But let's start at the beginning. I mean, now, like you said, you have thirteen restaurants in operation. About to be 15, Mm -hmm. uh, really doing a tremendous thing for the Northwest and Seattle as a whole. But, you know, you you grew up here on the East Coast, right? Well, kind of, sort of. I mean, as much as you grow up, I was 18, 
right? So you know, I'm not sure how much you grow up uh, through high school. Yeah, you you get your uh, you just stretch out. You get yeah, I mean, pains. You, you get your you know all the important things like puberty and things growing up, but uh, <laughs> but you don't get much in the way of life growing up. Uh, you know, it's being an adult, and so essentially, I grew up as an adult in Seattle area. Um, both on Bainbridge Island, some somebody might be from there. It's amazing how many people I've already run into New York right now. Today I've been here a day, and I've run into seven people that used to work for me in Seattle. So there's a, there's a nice synergy between the coast going on here. But uh, yeah, I was from Newark, Delaware. Got in my car, you know, finished high school, and I'm not a college guy. I didn't even like high school, so uh, knew I wasn't a college boy. So I got in my car with my 300 bucks, my '67 Bel Air Chevy station wagon, <laughs> white on the outside, blue on the inside. And packed with everything I could possibly take and everything I owned, for that matter. Uh, and started driving around the country. Didn't quite know where I was going to end up. Just was going for a year to travel. Ran out of money and gas in Seattle and uh, got a cooking job. And I've been there ever since. <laughs> Such f- amazing felicity when things like that happen. Yeah. And what, what was your first cooking job? Did you already know or have chops in the kitchen? Well, I'd taken home ec in high school to meet girls. And that worked. <laughs> I was the only guy uh, in my home ec class. I think they call it life sciences now <laughs> or sex ed or whatever but uh, back then it was home ec and you learned how to iron and you learned how to make cream puffs and you learned how to sew and i learned how to be with a girl because i met my girlfriend there for three years of high school we were together uh, and it is um that's that's my formal training but outside of that i did have some interest i was working at a liquor store down in uh, elkton maryland called state line liquors and in doing that uh, they had a big wine selection i kind of got I was 16 years old, kind of got into the whole wine thing, beer thing, and that, that is a natural transition into restaurants. And so I, went, I remember going to my high school counselor and saying, you know, I kind of have this, this interest. And at the time, when I went to her, I was uh, working on the back of a garbage truck in the Wilmington Housing Authority. Uh, me and a bunch of other dudes smoking cools on the back of a, <laughs> a Wilmington Housing Authority, Authority yellow dump truck. And uh, uh, I thought, you know, I, th- I, th- I kind of like this cooking thing. Do you think you could get me an interview at the Hotel DuPont just with the food and beverage manager to find out more about it. It was just an informational interview. Uh, at the end of that interview, uh, his name was Hans Ferdinand, uh, which is, isn't that the name of a band? Or no, something yeah, like yeah, Franz Ferdinand. But uh, yeah, it's such a penmanship yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and at that time, you know, in this country, that's what you, you know, when you talk food and beverage, you talk sh- to chefs at fancy places. They were all from Switzerland, Germany, France, somewhere else. They were not American. That has really changed in my little career. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, at the end of this hour of take, walking around this fancy hotel, which is kind of the home for the DuPont executives, uh, very shishi, most prestigious restaurant in the state of Delaware, uh, I, he offered me a cook's helper's job, which I wasn't expecting. I was just informational, and it was a buck an hour, and I took it. So I got to this cook's helper gig, and it kind of finished me off through high school. Uh, and... Uh, then, you know, with my seven months of experience, I, I could be a cook somewhere. Yeah. That's, that's what I did in Seattle. First thing I did when I got there was go apply for a job. Excellent. And that first job was? Well, it was at a, ended up being at a place called Benjamin's. It was a classic Seattle saute house. And I say that because it's um, on the West Coast at the time, there were these kind of um, open kitchen saute houses. Uh, I believe it's traced back to Henry Africa's in San Francisco, but it was a very hot concept where you had these kind of bar stool height seats with big backs on them. And then you looked right into the, you sat right at the counter where the cooks were, and the cooks had this lineup of burners. And it was all about the show and all about putting the pan on the, on the, the hot burner, 
getting the oil as hot as you could and throwing in something wet. It would create <laughs> the big flame and all the customers go, ooh, ah, and, you know, and it was just this big deal. Open all night. Many of them were 24 hours, but uh, the one I worked at, my shift started at 10 p.m., and we closed after bar war. So all the bars closed at 2, and then every, the place would just rock out uh, and fill up, and everyone was drunk and ordering the most expensive food. We had a 150-item <laughs> menu, and you just cook as fast as you could till 4 a.m., Closed down, clean up. The morning crew came in at 6 and opened up at 6.30. So yeah. it was just that, – that was the kind of saute houses that were all over Seattle, uh, the rage. And uh, it was actually my second interview. My first interview, I, uh, a guy named Lucho, big, big head of hair, hairy chest, gold chain, open collar. Um, go in there. I'd like to apply for a job. or so any kind of this fake Italian accent and Lucho. And uh, I had seen his – picture up on billboards around seattle you know it's called lucho at the butcher you know uh, and it's the butcher was the name of this uh, group of restaurants uh and so lucho interviewed me he said make me an omelet and so at the hotel dupont we made them swiss style where you kind of in a saute pan you stir around the eggs uh, jacques pepin makes them this very same way i've i've been with him when he's N- done it. Nice, wet, soft curd. Nice, wet, yeah. soft curd. And then if you want to put cheese or something in it, you put it right in the top of the eggs, and you put it under a salamander. And then you slide the omelet out. And we kind of considered that in the Northwest. It turns out that's a frittata. But an <laughs> omelet in the Northwest was always folded. So, right? Uh, and so I didn't know how to make a folded omelet. So I tried to fold an omelet for Lucho, Harry Lucho. And uh, he just looked at me, and as the omelet kind of slid off the plate and didn't quite do it right. He, says, he looked at me and said, yeah, I'm 18 years old, right? You'll never cook in this town. <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous thing <laughs> anyone's, I think anyone's ever said to me. And so I, I went with my tail between my legs to the next interview and got the job at uh, this little place yeah. called Benjamin's in Bellevue and I've and, uh, been cooking ever since. I hope someday you either have already done this or will do this. Have a billboard next to Lucho's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> saying Tom has cooked in this town. I've never, I haven't <laughs> seen Lucho in a long time. You know, that was thirty-four years ago. Now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, from such humble beginnings mm-hmm. to, you know, like you said, having over a dozen restaurants in Seattle, not just a dozen restaurants, but a dozen restaurants within ten blocks. Yeah, in downtown Seattle, so I mean, you can never get away. <laughs> I just walked to them. No, they're all right next yeah. to each other. Um, but, I mean, how, how does a career path like that happen? I mean, obviously, you have ambition, drive, skill, talent, but there's also got to be a mindset, some kind of game plan, or is it all whimsy? I wouldn't call it whimsy. Um, I wouldn't call it a game plan either. You know, I never want to do it in my own business. Here's what I would call it. I'm a worker bee. I like to work. And it turns out I love the restaurant business. Uh, and I, I have no other explanation for it. Nobody else in my family even hardly cooks at home. Or at least nothing outside of meatloaf and spaghetti and meatballs or something like that. You know, uh, I, I don't know where it comes from. The things that I can trace back to getting my breaks, whereas I was a damn hard worker. And always I got my breaks there. And then it turns out that I, um, you know, I can run a brigade. I, I like to work with people and people like to work with me. And in the restaurant business, which is all about working on the backs of so many people, uh, you know, that... Um, it's just if if you have that under your belt and capabilities, you can go a long way in this business. And whether you own it, whether you just work there or not, it really doesn't matter to me. Never was a criteria for me to open my own business. I'm not a. In some ways, I'm I, I'm a anti anti entrepreneur because I love change. Yeah. And one of the things that when you are an entrepreneur and you open your own business, and certainly what I've run into kind of with my peers sometimes is that. They just want you to stay in your spot. Okay, you opened the Dahlia Lounge, 20, I did almost 24 years ago now. 
Uh, now, a lot of them think, well, that's, that's your move. That's it. That's all you can do. And yeah. When I, you say you're going to open a second restaurant, somehow or another, a lot of your peers think you're selling out. Mm-hmm. Or you're not, you know, you're not taking this seriously because you're not on the stove every day, and that's just kind of the way it went for for me. But it turns out for me, I love opening restaurants. Yeah, I just think it's a, it's a great fun to pick out the china. It's like a poker hand, right? Yeah, you kind of uh, you look at you think of your idea, you think of the design. We have our own construction company, so we build all of our own restaurants. We design them, uh, pick out the china, you know, everything. And, and it's like a poker hand. Okay, you know, here's my cards. Let's play the hand. Let's see what happens. Do the customers buy it? Do you win? Does it, does it make money at the end of the month? Yeah. That's kind of what it comes down to, because you can be the best cook in the world. You can have all the attitude in the world. But if people don't walk through your front door, you're screwed. Yeah. And so that's, uh, that's kind of the way I look at it. It's, it's fun to get those new hands and, and play them and use your thoughts and keep your mind active and happy. And I, I love it. Yeah, but I mean, talk about a restaurant that definitely isn't a chain. Dahlia Lounge, which mm-hmm. opened in 89. And then the the gamut of other places you open have ranged from, you know, northern Italian food to a Tibetan, you know, dumpling, a dumpling truck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you don't get tired because you have new concepts and you progress right. that way. Um, what kind of restaurant is Dahlia Lounge and how have you went from one idea to the next? Well, I mean, Dahlia, I mean, it's got the beauty of being 24 years old, so people forget what a struggle it was the first <laughs> couple of years, right? You look at it now, wow, Tom's really successful and blah, blah, blah. Look at the Dahlia, it's still there 24 years later. Uh, it's kind of our flagship, and, you know, it's if, if you're coming to Seattle for one night, we want you to think of the Dahlia as the quintessential r- Seattle restaurant. I mean, it's it's got all sorts of... of uh, ideas. I mean, it's it's got all sorts of meaning now. But when you first open your restaurant, it doesn't mean shit. <laughs> you know, we sat there for two years and struggled to make a living. We opened in 89, November of 89 with 42 employees. By April of 90, we were down to 20. And that's including opening two extra days a week with me on the stove, lunch and dinner, seven days a week. I mean, it was a struggle. And that's just um, – so now – now it's a beautiful thing. I'm sitting here talking with you yeah. behind Roberta's. You know, it's like I can go away. There's 750 coworkers that are just keeping the fort and just had lunch at Gramercy. Before that, we had a, a pastrami sandwich at Katz's. Before that, we had a little sa- smoked salmon at, at uh, Russ and Daughters. Before that, we had coffee and pastry at Baltasar. That was this morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, life is good. Yeah. But that's, Dahlia is just, um, it really, to me, is it's uh, trying to stay on trend. That's, I think it's important to always stay on trend or you get dated and nobody gives a damn about you. Uh, we try to continue to lead the way. You know, we've bought a farm over in eastern Washington, which is high desert country, and everything grows there. And this is Prosser Farm. Prosser Farm, yeah. yeah. So Dahlia now is the ben- has the beneficiary of that uh, for the last five years. We're living the, the talk of uh, farm to table. We're, we're not just talking about it, We live it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dahlia is still a beautiful, in my mind, beautiful restaurant. Uh, it is just, it's kind of my baby. It's its the first one, but it was a struggle in yeah. the beginning. So so what what was the easiest restaurant to open? Was it Serious Pie? Was it Seatown? Was it... Uh... Uh, no, Seatown I kind of bonked on, but uh, I'd say the the one that kind of hit the, the hardest and fastest was uh, Etta's, which was our second restaurant. You know, it's just a ton of press, a lot of people talking about we were opening a new restaurant. At that point, we were the highest rated restaurant. We had just won the James Beard Award as Best Chef. You know, we, and Dahlia's opening a new restaurant, which wasn't as common then for a chef like me to open a couple of different restaurants. Usually, you know, that just wasn't heard of as much. 
And so uh, we we did it. It got full page reviews in all the papers, some good, some bad, but busy, 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 and almost too busy. Just the opposite of Dahlia, you know. Uh, it was too busy when we opened lines out the door, and we just didn't do a very good job. So we settled in, got our act together. Uh, but I'd say the one that kind of hit the home run immediately was Serious Pie. People love pizza. <laughs> that turns out people love pizza, and that uh, it's always a competition in pizza. Unlike, well, Dahlia is up for James Beard or, you know, you best restaurant in Seattle, blah, blah, blah. Pizza is much more organic competition. It's like, there's just something prideful there about having a better pie than the next dude. And we didn't really take that very seriously. or didn't even really think about it a whole lot. We did a lot of work on the pie. I think it's a delicious pie. But it's not something we understood. And then when you open the doors and somebody says, I mean, literally, we had a tasting the, um, three days before we opened. And somebody called it one of the 10 best pizzerias in America before we opened. It's like, what's that all about? And, and, <laughs> and then uh, kaboom, uh, you know, packed, 48 seats, two, three, four-hour waits, uh, just crazy. And yeah. there's a million pizzerias. What, what's going on here? And I didn't quite get it. I mean, I'd seen Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix and, you know, the kind of attention they got. But I didn't expect it in Seattle. It's, it seemed more – Seattle's a little bit more laid back that way. And then our most recent one, uh, most recent home run was the Brave Horse Tavern. And that is in the middle of a, a part of Seattle. It's called South Lake Union, and it's uh, right on the uh, old building, right on the Amazon campus, the largest urban corporate campus in the world. Um, it's going to have, uh, by the time they're done building in three years, almost 8 million square feet of office space just for Amazon. And uh, it is, we opened at 4 o'clock at 420. We had 270 people in there, and we got our ass kicked. <laughs> and it's been full ever since. It's, yeah. uh, it's just a tavern, tons of beers. Free free games like Shuffleboard and Big Buck Hunter, and it just was a shot in the dark for me. Uh, and it was a, it was a kind of a sad shot in the dark, and it, it turns out to be a happy occasion. We just do four dollar pretzels and six dollar burgers there. But I tell this story once in a while, and, and I I don't mean to be insult anyone at Amazon. It's, 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 that's not the point. But the point was, here I am. I'm ten restaurants into my group. I'm thinking, I think a little differently. Like I, here I, I have this old building and it's going to be three restaurants. And I'm just not sure what to put in there because there's no theaters or hotels. It's just typical on the, you know, just five blocks away where the Dahlia is. So it's just corporate campus. And I'm trying to figure out what it is. What do they want there? So I talked to a guy at Amazon. He let me talk to his group, 600 people in his work group. And I emailed them all. I said, if you had all the money in the world, and you could build a restaurant for, I mean, no cost to you, but but it's going to be right there next to your office. Um, what would you build? And I, I might ask you the, the same thing. If you had all the money in the world, you don't have to worry about if it's going to go bust or, or not. It's But you want it next to your office, and it could be anything you want it to be. What would it be? And I, I had a 72% common response. We got about 120 responses out of 600 people. Seventy-two percent said exactly the same thing. What would it be? Just a bar, any restaurant that you want. Yeah, no, just like somebody's basement, like just a hangout joint, uh-huh. something very like relaxed. here, like a Roberta's. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Which is, I, you know, Brave Horse is a little bit like this. Yeah, seventy-two percent cheap. <laughs> it wasn't sushi. It wasn't Italian. It wasn't burgers. It wasn't anything cheap. Yeah. Next most common response: reservations. Because they travel in packs. Yeah. 
and it's it was it it really struck me the difference between passionate organic cooks and people who look at numbers all day long. And not that they're not passionate or in, in their own way, but it's just not the same way. Yeah, very interesting uh, to me. Third thing was Italian. Yeah, <laughs> so so we did a cheap tavern, cheap dumplings. And uh, an Italian restaurant that takes reservations. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Knocked them all out. Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break and come back uh, with the man who was best chef uh, Northwest in 94 and how you became outstanding restaurant tour in cool. 2012. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Red Hook, Brooklyn. The beige sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Tom Douglas, and he has got me just dreaming about pretzels right now. Can, can you tell us how you make your pretzels at Brave Forest Tavern? I can't tell you the actual recipe because they make it in the uh, bread bakery. They make the dough over there. Yeah. We put it on a, a portion cutter, and then we send over the uh, hotel pans of portioned dough rounds. Uh, they uh, are not long fermented like many of our uh, breads are. They're just a daily fermented like our pita bread is for Lola. And it's um, we simply stretch and roll, uh, shape the pretzels, let them come back to life a little bit, uh, boil them in a lye a bath, uh, bring them out of that, let them dry for a little bit, and then hearth bake them in a wood stone oven, which happens to be built right there just north of Seattle. Uh, and it is... Um, they are just freaking delicious. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and they're just so soft and warm and delicious. And people went crazy for them uh, and, and immediately. And my chef was just going out of his mind because we didn't have that station staffed well enough in, in the opening. And, of course, I just said we were full from the minute we opened and never could keep up on the pretzels. And you know, we, were, we moved up to, you know, 300 a day, 400 a day. It's, it's, as we could make more, we would sell more. Yeah. And we finally topped out at 550 pretzels a day. Um, in a two-person operation. And I, maybe that doesn't sound like a lot to people, but when you're hand-stretching, dry, proofing, boiling, drying, baking, and then serving, it's a lot of pretzels. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a process. I mean, it, it takes a lot of work to make things from scratch. Yeah, but like you said, you wanted to open up a, a place with all those uh, you know, caveats that Amazon wanted. Right. You, know, you wanted cheap with reservations. And, mm-hmm. But 
uh, cheap didn't mean that you compromise quality. Exactly. So you wanted the best damn pretzel you could have. Exactly. And that's what you made. And smoked peanut butter. Come on. Well, we smoked peanut butter. We did a little pimento cheese dip. We did, uh, you know, dried our own dried Walla Walla sweet onion dip. Uh, we, you know, at the Brave Horse, I built all the tables to be 12 tops. So everyone shares a table or a group of 12 can just sit on down. Uh, all of our, we have uh, 40 beers on tap and all of them come in a 20 ounce pipe for six bucks delicious beer we have a great beer czar um, i don't know much about beer i don't drink it very much i like whiskey uh but uh we it's just our we now sell 100 barrels a week of beer in in the brave horse tavern that's a lot of beer that's the, lot it's of the beer. second largest beer bar in seattle Whew. but you're you're also a wine drinker very, I'm, a, I'm definitely a wine drinker, very yeah. involved in in wine i mean from starting at a liquor store in yeah. Maryland uh, to what you do now. You work at Columbia. Uh, what is it? I work with Columbia Crest all over yeah. the country, which is St. Michelle. I, uh, my farm is in wine, the Yakima Valley, which is big wine country for Washington. There's 1,100 Washington wineries now. Yeah. I was just at Gramercy Tavern. You know, it's hard to find Washington wine out and about sometimes. Yeah. You, you just see California. And back here on the East Coast, you tend to see more European, Italian, Spain. About a Gramercy Tavern today, they must have had 50 Washington wines on the list. I was so excited. Yeah. <laughs> it was shocking. Well, I mean, Columbia Crest is what? The second largest winery in the in the country. It is. Um, and, I mean, Walla Walla has been getting some press. Mm-hmm. Um, the Northwest uh, and Yakima Valley for wines. But wh- why do you think people kind of gloss over Washington as a wine-producing state? Um, you know, there's a lot of places with wine. There's good wine out coming out of New York now, yeah. Virginia. I mean, there's, I just think that it's people just don't realize and the production on most of those wineries is so small, you don't really see them. But uh, you're, you're starting to find Gallo just bought a big winery in Washington State. It's going to be more on the map every day. Uh, but it's Columbia Crest has just always done a really great job in that $10 category. And that's why it's so popular. You can find it anywhere. Uh, wine Spectator calls it the best wine in the $10 category in the world. You know, So they, they've always, I think, done a good job of staying within themselves. Yeah. So with this bounty of so many gorgeous growing areas, mm-hmm. why did you feel the need to ha- open up Prosser Farms? Well, it kind of happened. You know, we were looking for a second place uh, for, and we were going to go, my in-laws needed a spot to stay. Uh, and Jackie and I had decided, well, maybe we'll just buy a place for them, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's kind of what happened. So we, we looked all over, uh, we didn't want to really stay on the west side of the mountains. That's the rain country, and we live there. And so to take a place up, say, where everyone likes to go up in the San Juan Islands, a beautiful area. But, you know, it's pretty much the same weather pattern as we have in Seattle. So if you go the other direction, just two hours the other direction, this desert, right? So less than six inches of rain a year. Sunniest place in Washington is in Prosser, Washington. 300-plus days of sun a year. Uh, it's just it felt right. So we found this place on a bluff above the Yakima River. It was 20 acres. We didn't. We just really bought it for the house. We thought about doing a small farm, and then it just kind of kicked in. My wife found her spot. In yeah. Life, you know? <laughs> She's always had to play second fiddle to me a little bit in the restaurants. Uh, she doesn't get the attention, even though she works just as hard. Uh, and this farm just spoke to her, and now she's over there every week. I don't know if it's because she hates me or because <laughs> she likes to farm, but she's uh, just this little brown bunny over there, and she works really hard, and, and she's got a crew of six that she runs over there, and uh, it, it's really organic and f- exciting for her. Yeah. So, I mean, last year we brought 60,000 pounds of produce over, over 12 tons of tomatoes. Now, we're talking sun and water make beautiful tomatoes, and I know even in the southern Jersey they have great tomatoes. Yeah. I, I, I get it, but... The, we had 2,400 tomato plants last year. 
we averaged 85 pounds of tomatoes per plant. That's eggplants coming out of our ears. Any of those nightshades that take great sun, peppers like you wouldn't believe. Uh, it's just a, it's a great growing area. And we take all the compost from the restaurants. We put it on our truck on the way and take it over to the farm. Uh, and then we spread it around the farm and bring the produce back to the Seattle. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Um, I think a lot of this produce, too, and showing people that there is uh, this abundance uh, mm-hmm. first happened in your cookbook, uh, Tom's Seattle Kitchen. Right. And I think that was 2001, mm-hmm. which, I mean, you, you've been beard happy for a while. <laughs> uh, won Best uh, American Cookbook right. that year, too. Mm-hmm. And really introduced people to uh, Seattle as a destination for not just seafood, as most people assume, but for all these amazing organic mm-hmm. vegetables and fertile soils. Um you're here today, uh, well, because you're in New York and right. uh, so graciously came to uh, Heritage. But you also have a new cookbook, uh, the Dahlia Bakery Cookbook, mm-hmm. which I do not want to forget talking about because I flipped through this thing and I'm, I'm completely enamored. Um, first question is, does it have the pretzel recipe in there? It doesn't. You know, it came out after this. Uh, oh So yeah. you're just going to have to do a whole pretzel book. We're working on Seattle <laughs> Kitchen, too, an update to that 2001 oh, cookbook. Because that, that first book was favorites from our first three restaurants. Yeah. And now we have 13, almost 15 uh, restaurants. And so it needs to be updated. Yeah, yeah. But Talia Bakery is such an amazing book because I don't think it's going to need to be updated for quite some time. It's, it's such an archive of what you do. Uh, both really, in Dahlia Bakery and all the other restaurants. Yeah, it really is. Our bakery, our, our pastry kitchen and bread kitchen are both centralized. And so it really is kind of a photo of the different recipes from each of the restaurants. Uh, you'll find some Lola desserts, which are more Greek and Turkish inspired. You'll find the Dahlia classic Northwest desserts, even though you know our, we're really famous at the Dahlia for our triple coconut cream pie. And it is darn good, I got to say. Uh, but... Um, You'll find the, the f- fresh fruit desserts. You also find, you know, we actually have a 150 square foot retail bakery, the Dahlia Bakery, uh, and so you'll find all the soups and sandwiches that we serve there. All the breakfast muffins and croissants and jams, you know, quick jams. Uh, but it's just, I think it's kind of a, it's a fun retrospective a bit of what it is that we do and cooking from scratch and yeah. and why, why the hell it matters that you make the effort. I was just writing an article for the Wall Street Journal, and it was about indulgence. And I think sometimes, uh, in related to this book, uh, people now tend to look at dessert as some sort of indulgence rather than a fitting in to the perfect meal. You know, rather than the a, a nice slice of a nice little scoop of pear sorbet, they'd rather have a twenty ounce steak and a one pound baker, and then say, "Well, uh, dessert's too many calories for me." You know, just completely unbalanced. Rather than just having a nice balanced dinner, finish with a sweet. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a thousand calories. But uh, I just think that there's something nice to that process of a menu and that balance. And uh, I'd like to see people get back to having dessert within proportion. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be a tasting menu. We're sitting down for, you know, 20 courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a funny thing because uh, I had a guest on earlier today, and we were talking about the idea of, you know, quality versus quantity, mm-hmm. like whether or not you want to spend your money on the best darn little thing or spend your money on something that's moderate but much larger portion. Um, and then refining yourself, doing mm-hmm. everything by hand from scratch and, you know, get, giving that integrity to something. I'd rather invest my money there. And I'm sure the flavor and uh, everything that goes with it is also inherently in that product. 
And and why is it that you go to the store and you buy, you know, $30 piece of salmon for your guest? You're having somebody over for dinner tonight, $30, $40, $50 piece of salmon. And yet when it comes to dessert, you know, there's a box of crappy cookies with some cheap ice cream that you bought that somehow represents dessert and kind of shows your effort. Yeah. You know, and I just think that your friends and your family are worth the effort to have a little fresh fruit crisp. How hard is that? Yeah. It's not. Uh, it's, it's, it's just as simple. It cooks right when you're making the rest of your dinner. Uh, you know, it's just, I just think people need to get refocused a little bit. Start counting. If you want to count calories, start at the first course and go all the way through. Don't just wait to start counting at dessert. <laughs> and uh, I think the Dahlia Bakery cookbook is a great entrance into, you know, uh, finishing with dessert. Mm-hmm. Um, for a man that eats everything, what do you eat most of at the bakery? I eat the maple eclairs with a shot of espresso at four o'clock pretty much every day. Yeah. Pretty much every day. And the thing that I, I want to say about desserts also is, is if you have kids, or even if you want to just start something with family and friends, it's a great way to start traditions. You know, I think even more than, I mean, some people make mom's meatloaf or, or you know, Grandma Dot had the best Greek spaghetti. Or, but desserts tend to be fill that role for us as passed down recipes, as lore for your family history. And I think that that's uh, something you can create right out of any dessert book, whether it's mine or somebody else's. But the one in my book that I really remember is the Schnecken, which is a German cinnamon roll pull-apart. And God, for forever I can remember smelling that and walking down to the uh, kitchen where Grandma Douglas was down there and, and had it rolled out, that soft yeasty dough rolled out and spreading butter and brown sugar and raisins and rolling it you know, all squishy all up and putting it into a bed of caramel that was on, you know, in the bottom of the pan and baking it off. And all of us kids, you know, there were eight of us in the house and just itching <laughs> to get it, you know, waiting for that to come out of the oven. And she was so feisty, you know, she would just smack your fingers with a fly swatter or something like that, you know, uh, to keep you away until it was just cool enough that uh, the dough had t- uh, time to toughen up a little bit. You know, sometimes when it's just out of the oven, it's too soft. And so it cures a little bit. And, you know, we would, and then we'd have our favorite bite of that Schnecken. You know, some people like the caramelized corners. Other people like the soft centers. Just great family history and traditions. Yeah, well, I also wish the listeners could see uh, the way you're speaking with your hands right now. Because <laughs> dessert itself is such an amazing tactile thing. If you look at dessert, I feel like, uh, especially bakeries, the majority of them are eaten with hands. And mm-hmm. things like Schnecken and, and uh, the monkey bread that you have in the right. book, too. You know, you want to tear into that. You want to use your hands. You want to interact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the majority of the rest of the meal is often fork and knife, you know, right. soup spoon. And, you know, it, it lets you be a kid again. It lets you be your most, uh, uh, you know, almost animalistic at mm-hmm. the end of the meal to finish off um, in, in the most hedonistic of ways. And right. uh, it's just a great way to kind of cap things off by, you know, getting your hands right in there. And that, that monkey bread, you know, we serve a really nice silky caramel with that caramel crimp, you know, sauce. And you dip it in there and you dip your fingers right in with it and you're just licking your hands. <laughs> it's just, it's mm. So when's your next restaurant opening without silverware? Uh, well, it's opening, actually, uh, it's supposed to be the end of December. It's a falafel joint. We're doing oh, yeah? a, a black bean and chili falafel and a regular uh, chickpea falafel with these roasted vegetable salads on top. And I think it's really delicious. Awesome. And it's only 10 seats, and it's over at the Paramount Theater in downtown Seattle where we have the catering contract. And so it's going to be that's going to be first. And then our big one coming up after that's got a grocery store and a coffee shop and a cake shop. And it's more of a, a hall, yeah. a market. Excellent. And these things, are they for the neighborhoods themselves? Are you catering towards a clientele? Or are these things that you inherently want in your life? Generally, it's the latter. Generally, um, I just have a a need to – 
I don't care if it's, if it's a Russian restaurant. I'm looking at this kind of modern Scandinavian bar idea right now. Um, I don't care. I just like to try new stuff. I like change. Yeah. And like I said earlier, that's the, it's the hardest part about being an entrepreneur is people want to put you in a box. And luckily, I've expanded my box enough, and people have accepted me as a restaurant opener rather than just having to be at that one spot, that one business. I mean, what has been the hardest transition from being you know, a cook, a chef to a restaurateur? Is it delegation? Is it managing? Is it marketing? For me, the transition has been the most difficult, I think, is not knowing my place. I've never done this before. You know, I look at Danny Meyer. He's got, what, 25, 30 restaurants now. And he just seems, he was always a front of the house guy. He just seemed to know his place better as he got larger. And he, it was more normal for a front of the house person to do this. You look at me and mine, I just, I've had to transition to that front of the house, the general manager running big crews, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just not as comfortable out front. And knowing my place, uh, I'm a big believer in giving back to my city and, you know, doing the right thing and giving people living wages and working towards health care and just knowing my place and uh, getting the school lunch program back on track. And, you know, just the things that we love to do. We feed people, yeah. you know, and uh, that's been a, that's been harder for me is because is I'm a shy person. And that's uh, that's been more difficult. That's why you're hiding in a box behind a restaurant. Well, right it's now. just uh, people say you can, you're not shy, and it's, I totally am. I'm oh, yeah. never one to walk out to the dining room if I don't know, like to walk up to a table and just say, "Hey, I'm Tom. I own the joint." I would never do that. Yeah. Well, you and you do see like chefs this. do it all the time. Yeah, I mean, you should do it like this. You're you're obviously comfortable in front of a microphone. Do that Wizard of Oz thing. Yeah. And, <laughs> pull the <laughs> curtain. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I am so glad to have met you and uh, to actually be going to Seattle in July, and I'm going to see. Uh, how many of those restaurants I can hit in a 48-hour period. Well, now um, that you know me, you can go and you can just uh, call me and I got a great, uh, the Hotel Andra is perfect downtown. So. Excellent. Uh, not only an ambassador, but like you said, all these amazing initiatives towards the city that you love. And I think uh, something that people should take away from this, it's not just about the food, but it's about the familiar surroundings and right. supporting that as well. And you do so many wonderful uh, green initiatives and, mm-hmm. you know, from recycling and then the school lunches, and that should be well, completely Restaurants lauded. are the last bastion of socialization. Everyone's in front of these damn computers all day long, on their phones, on their iPads, and restaurants are the last place for us to gather, to talk politics, to really talk about your community, do things right for people. And I just think we are at the center of the universe. I love it. Yeah, so with the upcoming election, everyone should get out to restaurants and talk and uh, aggregate and, you know, get moving. Absolutely. Vote for who you want to vote for. Go Obama. But, you know. Totally. TomDouglas.com. You got all the information there, all the restaurants, the farm, or I'm sure if you go within that 10 block radius uh, uh, near Ballard, you're following Tom walking You can start hungry and end up really full. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much for being on and... Listen to Seattle Kitchen. Uh, what day uh, is it there? Uh, it's live uh, Saturdays from ten or from two to four. Sundays repeated from ten to twelve. Excellent. K I R O Radio ninety seven three FM. Support food radio. There you go. Excellent. Thank you again, Tom. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network dot org. Your host Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, 
or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.